Welcome to the FTF Exchange Podcast. This is Maureen Lowe, founder and president of FTF. In this podcast series, we speak with industry professionals from leading financial and technology firms in capital markets. We will discuss an array of topics from current events to the latest fintech updates to human interest stories from time to time. Through these discussions, we strive to foster thought leadership and information sharing, and we certainly welcome comments and feedback for future episodes. If you are interested in participating in one of our podcasts, please reach out to us. Contact info can be found in the notes of this podcast posting. Thanks again for joining us. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to our latest FTF Exchange podcast. For this podcast, we are speaking with Alexander Sokol, founder, executive chairman, and head of quant research at Compatible Technologies. Compatible is a trading and risk solutions provider that Alexander founded in 2003. In 2022, Alexander was voted FinTech Person of the Year through the FTF Awards competition. Compatible also won the Best Digital Transformation Solutions Provider in 2022. Today, we're going to talk about the trading and risk models that leverage machine learning. So, Alexander, could you quickly remind us who you are and what you do at Compatible? Thank you. Uh, my name is Alexander Sokol, and I'm the founder, executive chairman, and head of quant research at Compatible. I'm here today in my capacity as the head of quant research to talk about the new model types that we've developed to encode our market models. Okay. So could we quickly review the market conditions that are creating the need for this innovation? First, how has the global rise in interest rates changed the landscape? And how have rising interest rates contributed to the need for better modeling? Well, the global rise in interest rates uh, created a situation where recent history of uh, near zero rates for major currencies no longer represents the likely future evolution of rates. In most of conventional interest rate models, the models that financial institutions use to measure the risk or to price derivatives or to price uh, value adjustments are based on modeling incremental changes to the initial interest rates. The further they go from today's market, the worse predictions of these models become. And the incremental approach of conventional models that works best for small changes in interest rates uh, in quiet markets, it becomes a lot less effective during market turmoil when rates change rapidly and when the future evolution of rates takes them very far away from the initial you know, state uh, that we're starting from today. So the new model types that we developed, uh, which we call autoencoder market models, are based on training the models to the entire history of interest rates not only for the currency we're modeling, but also across all other currencies. And this this historical data that we are training our model to represents all kinds of market regimes. So in the past, you know, some currencies like Japan, you know, rates were very low, near zero for decades. In other markets, the rates were very high. So by training the model to all of the rate regimes across all currencies, these models become more effective following a change in market regime, where Today's markets are going to be followed by rapid evolution, and wherever the evolution takes us, we will always find in the historical data a similar market regime, and the model will be able to present this regime well. And uh, just very quickly, how long does it take to train a model? 
with any machine learning, of course, uh, training is the most computationally intensive part of the effort. But these models, they work with data that's, uh, you know, there's a lot less data in financial markets compared to, for example, language models, of course, that everybody is talking about these days, or image recognition models. So these models, even if you train them on a regular machine, you, they don't take a lot to train. You know, they take minutes, uh, you know, an hour, you know, a couple of hours to train. But the important thing is that you only have to do it most frequent once a day. Uh, usually, we would recommend to do it even less frequently, uh, for example, monthly or even quarterly. So the training step uh, for machine learning model, which is computationally intensive, is actually not what you do when you run the model in production. It's when you train it, and you train it periodically, uh, not more frequently than once a day, and sometimes even once a month, once in a quarter. Once you run the model, uh, it you know the the speed of actually using the model is similar to the speed of you know a complex analytical solution or a semi-analytical solution. So, if anything, uh, machine learning models they are slower to train, which you have to do rarely. But when you run them, they outperform methods such as Monte Carlo or uh, finite you know finite differences, differential equation solvers, and their speed is comparable to semi-analytical or analytical solutions. Oh, great, great. So uh, just to, to take a little detour here, let's start with a step-by-step definition. The textbook definition of autoencoders is that they are machine learning algorithms that can compress high-dimensional data into a low-dimensional space. Let's start by defining high-dimensional data. What do you mean by that term? And same question for low-dimensional data. Now, of course, uh, a lot of uh, machine learning and math uh, definitions and, you know, these uh, mathematical concepts actually have very specific meaning in relation to financial markets. So let's start from high dimensional data. So financial data for interest rates and other asset classes is high dimensional in the sense that each observation consists of many individual market quotes. If you're talking about a stock, for example, uh, and let's say uh, you would like to see, you know, what value your stock portfolio has, you only need the stock price. But a yield curve, right, the curve that represents um, uh, yields of bonds or swaps uh, or interest rate instruments of different maturities, consists of 10 or 15 quotes for different maturities. And the model must represent them together because they depend on each other, they evolve together, they cannot be modeled independently. So that's already 10 or 15 dimensions, right, where each dimension is an individual market quote. Now, if we talk about volatility surface, namely volatilities of different types of interest rate options, if it's a surface, it has two dimensions. One is the maturity dimension. It consists of options of different maturities. Another one is a strike, right? Namely, the uh, the strike of the option. So there we get, you know, between 50 and 100 individual market codes, so the dimension becomes even higher. For swaptions, uh, which are options to enter into an interest rate swap, uh, you have three dimensions. One is the time until you have to decide if you're going to exercise the option. The other one is length of the swap into which uh, you would exercise. And a third one is the fixed rate, you know, yield essentially of the financial instrument that uh, you exercise into that you will own if you decide to exercise. So there is over 100, uh, you know, and a few hundred individual market quotes that all together uh, form this market data. So this data is high dimensional in the sense that it's more than a few dimensions. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, fortunately, it's less high dimensional than things like an image, which makes things, you know, simpler for us. Uh, It makes the models less computationally demanding. And because you cannot describe the evolution of each quote individually, we must be able to represent them collectively. But a model 
that has 50, 100, you know, 200 state variables or parameters. It's very hard to build. It's very hard to work with. Uh, it becomes very unstable where uh, from day to day it can change significantly. So all of the models, and this is not limited to the models we've developed uh, to encoder market models, but even the conventional or classical interest rate model perform dimension reduction. And dimension reduction is when you learn how to represent all of this collection of market codes, that there are many of them, so it's high dimension, using fewer state variables. Most of the interest rate models today in production, I'm talking about conventional models, use two to five state variables. So it's much fewer than the number of market codes. And this is what is meant uh, by saying that the state variable space is low dimensional and dimension reduction have to be, has to be performed. So what is a variational autoencoder, otherwise known as VAE? How do VAEs fit in with compatibles autoencoder market models offering? Uh, generally, dimension reduction or size reduction, if we were talking about things like an image, is a compression algorithm. Uh, and the similarity between them can be understood very easily if we think of an image as essentially a set of uh, pixels that uh, you know, have on the screen. If you have a compression algorithm, for example, such as JPEG, of course, we're all familiar with that because that's how uh, you know, pictures on our phones are compressed. They are able to compress the image, reduce the amount of space it takes you know, in memory uh, on a phone or on a disk uh, by about tenfold. Because they are general purpose, they can compress any image or you know, most of the images. Variational at the encoders are machine learning algorithms that provide a fundamentally different type of compression. It has more power, but also it has a limitation. So the power of it is that the rate of compression it can achieve is much higher. Not 10, you know, it could be 100 or 1,000. But only when they are trained and used for the specific data. For example, JPEG can compress image of a face, image of a house, you know, landscape, anything. But variational at the encoder, if you train it specifically to compress images of faces, it can compress up to, you know, 10 to 100 times better than JPEG algorithm, but it will only be able to compress faces well. If you give it an image of a house, uh, it will not work well. So at the encoder market models that we've developed uses variational at the encoder, which is one particular type of at the encoder. And at the encoder generally, is a machine learning algorithm that learns from from the data, uh, is trained on, a, on a sample data to perform optimal compression, right? And then you can use it on other data of similar kind to perform compression on this data it has not seen before. So at the encoder market model is trained on historical financial markets data, which is high dimensional. And we just discussed yield curve, volatility surface, volatility cube, which has dimensions of uh, tens, hundreds, or you know over 100. And it learns to compress it into these two to five state variables optimally. And that's exactly where we take machine learning concept that has you know, seen tremendous success. In, you know, in fact, most of the successes in machine learning that you've heard of before in areas from you know, speech, text recognition, you know, image recognition, many of them in one or another way uh, involve autoencoders and specifically variational autoencoders. We take this amazing machine learning innovation and apply it to financial markets to compress this high dimensional data into few model state variables. Uh, what is the point of applying uh, variational autoencoders to the challenges of complex modeling for interest rates that, that many firms are, are facing? 
right? So the main motivation for this is, if I may, you know, is respect for financial markets and willingness to learn from history without preconceptions. And what I mean by that is that uh, if we take conventional interest rate models or generally conventional uh, quant models, namely models that uh, banks, you know, financial institutions, asset managers use to measure the risk and price uh, the determine the value of their portfolio, they're based on equations. So the way these models are applied is that a set of equations is derived. And then the data that you observe in the market, either today's prices of instruments or historical data, is then adopted, you know, rather the equation parameters of the equations are uh, calculated or the word for this process is calibration. So they're calibrated to market implied, meaning today's prices or historical data. But when you make this first step of selecting the equation, you already constrained what the model can do. You hope that your equation represents historical data well. But any equation that you write down that has a simple formula will not represent financial markets data perfectly because the markets, you know, they don't move according to neat equations, right? They're, they're messy. Uh, all kinds of behaviors happen. It's very hard to write an equation using a pen, you know, and a piece of paper that will describe something like financial markets. So with development of auto-inquiry market models, to us, you know, it's essentially developing the model with full respect for how financial markets operate and uh, willing to learn from history without uh, preconceptions or rigid boundaries created by writing down these equations. When we train Autoencora to the historical data, we're able to make the model produce essentially predictions, predictions or you know, produce uh, prices or calculate risk based on what the markets did in the past <laughs> and without any arbitrary choice of equation. How can they help with interest rate portfolios, managing limits and add-ons, and then also credit exposure? Right. So uh, the reason we applied this models first to interest rate markets, even though this particular model category, auto-encoder market models, uh, is applicable across multiple categories. But we specifically applied them to interest rates because interest rate portfolios tend to be very long data. And conventional models are based on rate increments. So most of the conventional models and some of the most popular conventional models, they start from today's market and then the model increments or changes relative to today's market. One of the reasons uh, this is not as good as uh, modeling the actual market as opposed to the change in the market from the initial state is that, as we discussed earlier today, during market turmoil, the future evolution can take us very far from today's market. So that's one shortcoming of this approach. But the other one is that if you go over a very long time horizon, you know, some of the interest rate portfolios, or many of the interest rate portfolios have instruments of 20 to 30 uh, year maturity. And, you know, there are some portfolios of fixed income that have even longer maturities, you know, up to 50 years. So uh, when you go that far in the future, 20 to 30 years, the initial state should be long forgotten, right? So in other words, uh, you know, if you model 30 years in the future, uh, really, what your model is predicting 30 years in the future should not depend on the exact initial point that you started from. And the longer this horizon is, uh, the better the approach of out-in-quarter market models is, because these models represent the curve surface or you know volatility cube state as opposed to the change from the initial state. So in a market turmoil, when there is a big change over a short period of time, or in any markets, when you just go long enough, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, the models that represent the state, 
namely what the curve is, as opposed to how it changed from this very distant uh, point in the past. Uh, so the autoencoder market models that represent the curve itself work better. And this applies both to things like pricing and uh, value adjustments. And uh, this is what quants call uh, risk neutral measure, as well as things like risk and limits, which is what quants call uh, P or uh, real world measure. And this is why uh, these models are especially suitable for interest rate portfolios or any other portfolios that uh, include long dated instruments. But they also work for any portfolios during market turmoil. Okay. Why do autoencoders potentially yield models with predictions that are better than traditional methods? We expect this to be the case because we learn directly from the history. And there is a very well-known adage that, you know, history repeats itself. So by learning from the history and not relying on equations that somebody wrote down with a pen on a piece of paper, we hope that this model work well. And the data that uh, we've uh, gathered testing these models is very encouraging and points, you know, to that this approach is correct. And uh, because the models learn from, from history, they're able to better fit the markets without the constraints of the equations. And you can literally see it in the predictions they make. For example, sometimes uh, yield curve, you know, when they go, you know, yield curve or other, you know, the, the yields of different instruments of different maturities, they behave differently for near zero, very low interest rates, sometimes rates even go negative, from mid-range interest rates, from very high interest rates. And because at the encoder market models learn from historical data that includes all of these regimes and can represent all of them well, whereas conventional models best represent the regimes best that are similar to the initial state to the markets today and they become progressively less accurate when the regime changes so this is what makes autoencoder based models potentially better models from, uh, you know compared to conventional models in the data that we have so far as well as data by other research groups that have adopted this approach support this very strongly so it appears that cloud computing and the push for digital transformation are serving as pillars for the move to auto-encoder-based models. How are the cloud and other IT innovations helping bring down costs for cutting-edge auto-encoders? I'll give two-part answer to this question. So one of them is that because we're not dealing with images, we're not dealing with speech, and we're not dealing with text, the overall computational effort for this specific type of model is actually moderate, right? So in other words, uh, training takes minutes, uh, sometimes it takes uh, an hour, but you know these are not the models uh, such as some of the very well-known uh, machine learning models, uh, for example, for language that require uh, you know millions of dollars in uh, hardware investment uh, even to train them. But this being said, you know I still think that the uh, there is a very strong influence of the availability of uh, cloud and you know digital transformation in practical uh, adoption of machine learning models. Because with any machine learning model, and you know some machine learning models are more demanding computationally than this particular type of model that has moderate computational requirements, the computationally intensive training process must be performed from time to time. And when you have a cloud implementation, in the cloud, you have pay-as-you-go model. So in other words, if you have a massive uh, computational requirement, for an hour or, you know, for an hour every quarter or, you know, for, let's say, 10 minutes every day, you don't have to make a massive investment in hardware that would sit idle the entire day, except for this initial, you know, 10 or 15 minute period when you use it uh, intensely. So cloud is, is extremely well suited for machine learning because of its flexibility in uh, capacity where you can uh, increase capacity. It's very scalable 
when you need it, but you don't have to pay for the capacity you don't use. And with machine learning, it's a very typical load pattern where there is an intense uh, computational demand during training and very, very little during model use. So cloud generally is amazing for machine learning. And in fact, I believe that a lot of machine learning research and a lot of adoption would not have happened uh, if cloud was not available or if banks did not transition to the cloud because that would have made the cost uh, prohibitive. Another aspect of digital transformation that is extremely important for adopting our quarter market models or any other machine learning models is the tremendous progress made by the open source community in releasing very powerful Python-based machine learning and math libraries and making them available in the cloud at minimal cost. Because uh, performing machine learning research or running the model in production, if you have to build everything from scratch, it would require a massive investment in IT infrastructure, in all of the code around, storing the data, uh, running the model, etc., that only major banks or major asset managers would have been able to afford. But today, as part of the digital transformation, major cloud providers, uh, as well as you know, most, I would say at this point, most cloud providers, have very specific services available at minimal cost commercially that uh, make it possible to run machine learning models uh, with all of the infrastructure already built in, the various studios, you know, I don't want to talk about specific vendors or, or the products, but generally there are all kinds of machine learning studios, uh, machine learning tools, and uh, all of that makes it uh, lowers the barrier to entry. It makes it possible uh, if your firm, you know, does not have, you know, $100 million IT budget, and even if, you know, it's a very small firm, let's say, you know, a bank, financial institution, uh, you know, in a startup hedge fund, you are able to leverage this infrastructure and only pay uh, essentially for the time in the cloud. It is provided in most cases for free or at, uh, you know very nominal fees. So I believe that all of that, both the ability to have elastic loads uh, when you can have heavy computational load uh, on demand, as well as the ability of machine learning tools as part of digital transformation have tremendous importance for the adoption of machine learning in uh, mainstream financial institutions, you know, basically banks, asset managers, um, and so forth. Uh, but again, I wanted to, in conclusion to reiterate that uh, while other models that we may develop in the future may be more computationally demanding, this particular model type at the encoder market models, you can even run it on a laptop or on a desktop or on a, basically with minimal cloud implementation. So it's not a, such a computationally intensive model that it would require the cloud, but other machine learning models are, and that's where the cloud uh, is extremely important. And lastly... What kind of a reaction are you getting from financial services firms when you talk to them about uh, the auto encoder market models that, that you are uh, developing? Yeah, so there is tremendous interest, you know, and the presentations we've done, the workshops we've done, webinars with record-breaking attendance. You know, we, as far as I understand, you know, broke uh, for a recent webinar, we actually broke the uh, record on attendance uh, for this particular uh, webinar provider. So there is tremendous interest. But also, you know, these models cannot be used in production unless regulators uh, and auditors are comfortable with them. This is why uh, in developing these models, we took a very conservative approach. And we followed the principles of trustworthy ML, trustworthy machine learning, in making the models easy to understand, easy to test. The machine learning training is a step in model development, and the output of machine learning can then be examined in detail before it's used in production. So one very strong advantage of this model is that after machine learning is done, you can examine the output, which is not always possible for every machine learning model. So we're getting very strong interest. There's generally tremendous interest, not only in research, but also in production implementations. And of course, we've implemented it in, in our software suite, which is the same suite we use for research. 
But uh, right now, I think the challenge is to make sure that regulators, auditors, uh, as well as uh, internal risk control groups are fully comfortable with how these models perform with the properties, uh, that they compare them and you know see the advantage compared to conventional models. And this is something that we're very engaged in right now, working with other research groups uh, on additional directions uh, in this research, as well as working with our clients and generally with financial community in better understanding these models, uh, creating adoption on these models, and making sure that any uh, bank group or research group uh, would like to try these models and compare them to conventional models, we will fully support them in their efforts. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you for your time, Alexander. Thank you for having me. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode of the FTF Exchange podcast. If you would like a turn in the hot seat, reach out to us at info at ftfnews.com and let us know what capital markets topics you'd like to discuss. Also, be sure to sign up to receive our email alert so you don't miss out on listening to future episodes. Just visit ftfnews.com and click the sign up link at the top of the page. Thanks again for listening to the FTF Exchange podcast. Thank you.